As Americans, we love the rights that we have. And we are often willing to die for those rights if they are ever in jeopardy. In the Declaration of Independence, we read that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Just 10 years later or so, as Congress wrote the Constitution, with it came the Bill of Rights. That we have the right to have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. We have the right to bear arms. You know, growing up in the afternoon, my brothers and I would watch this TV show called Cops. It really made you think the world was a lot worse than it was. But as we grow up watching shows like that or detective movies and the criminal gets arrested, we always remember they read them their Miranda rights. And, and sometimes we, we kind of take those for granted. Those are actually very important rights. Like you have the, rem- the right to remain silent. Our country is built off of laws and rights bestowed upon our Creator. But when we live in a nation that's obsessed with rights and privileges and what we are able to do, and you mix that with a culture that is also very highly individually expressive, at times you can head towards murky waters. A society that champions and prizes individualism with a society that champions rights and freedoms, at times you begin to hear things like, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt someone in the act of doing it. Or just like these Corinthian believers from the passage we just read, I can eat whatever meat that was offered to any idol. I don't care who has a problem with it. It's my right. I've talked about the dangers of expressive individualism in other sermons, and and I'm not meaning to get into that a ton, but but I want us to see that that in the culture and the world we live in right now, it's very easy for us to have no concern about, should I do this? And oftentimes we just think more so, can I do this? And so this morning, Paul here is switching to another topic in which he needs to help these Corinthian believers understand how the church needs to think more cohesively. All throughout 8, 9, and 10, Paul is going to labor this point about food being offered to idols. Now, I wonder how many of you were just like, finally, when is one of our pastors going to talk about food being offered to idols? I have been waiting for this sermon. And it could seem very distant from, from a modern perspective. Like, what in the world? Why are we talking about this? But, but really, if you remember the, the, the broader context of 1 Corinthians, this church is struggling with unity. They just have a downright, unapologetic lack of care and concern for one another. They are squabbling over their favorite preachers and who speaks better. They, they are a church where Paul says, actually, in the very first chapter, in, in the introduction, Paul actually thanks God. He, he says, 
Corinthians, you guys, you were enriched in, in the Lord in every way, in all speech, in all knowledge. Paul says, you are lacking in no good gift. And so these Corinthians, the fruit of their conversion is they have spiritual gifts that are wonderful. They have a lot of spiritual knowledge and wisdom. They have been enriched in every way. And this brings a very important observation. Because although they had a lot of spiritual gifting, and although they had a lot of theological knowledge, it didn't translate to spiritual maturity. You can be the most spiritually gifted person in the room. You can have the most theological knowledge of anyone here and have a PhD, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you love God more. They are destroying the church. They think they are so spiritually mature and so spiritually wise. And Paul says, if you were so spiritually mature, why do you tolerate sin? Chapter 5. If you were so spiritually mature, why are you suing one another? Chapter 6. If you were so much better than other people, why are you giving in to sexual immorality? Why are some of you insisting on asceticism? Chapter 7. And why is it here in chapter 8 that you think that, that to truly be spiritual is just to have a bunch of knowledge? And that word knowledge is really the key word of chapter 8 because he'll, he'll come back to it again and again. That, that the, the temptation for these Corinthian believers was to think that those who are truly spiritual, those who are truly wise, are the knowers. Those who have all of the knowledge. And Paul wants them to see, wait a second, that there is a sense in which you can know a lot of things, but that's not actually true knowledge. Our main point today in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is this, true knowledge of Christ should always lead us to sacrificial love and concern for others. There is a way in which we can know a lot of things, but yet not actually know anything at all. It seems weird to say, but you can get an A on the theological test, but completely flunk living the Christian life. And so Paul wants to help us think about Christian knowledge a little bit more. And I have to just say from the outset, we have this dichotomy in, in modern evangelicalism. On, on one hand, we have those who, who love the theology they're going to name their children John after Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin. And, and they're going to debate all the finer points of, of the doctrines of grace. And then we have the camp that says, we don't need theology. We, we, all of those boring textbooks and, man, you pastors are always recommending more books to us. Who's got time for that? I just got me, Jesus, and Caleb, and we're good. And, and, and so Paul wants us to, to avoid this all-or-nothing thinking. He, he wants us to think clearly about Christian knowledge. Because really, the, the, the issue behind this issue of food and dietary laws and idolatry, it isn't so much about our, our theological knowledge, it's really about the fruit of our knowledge. And like I've already said, true knowledge of Christ should always lead us to having a sacrificial love and concern for others. 
And so for our time this morning, we're going to see three ways in which the Apostle Paul helps us to think correctly about Christian knowledge. And the first way, we, we need to recognize there is a danger that comes with having knowledge. There is a danger that comes with having knowledge. And we see that in verses 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now, now most people think that Paul here, again, is quoting the Corinthian believers, that, that some of these believers, we'll call them the, the, the camp of the knowers, were going around and saying, guys, listen, we, we all know we, we all know what the right thing is, and, and technically speaking, we'll see in a second, that they had the right theology, that idols were nothing, that there's really only one God. And so, so Paul kind of is, is quoting them. He's saying, yeah, there is a way in which you can know and have knowledge, but there's a way in which you can weaponize it. How many of you in... You're at a dinner party or someone comes up to you at church and they, they come up to you and they say, hey, did you hear? Or did you know? Now, most of the time when people lead up to that, they're, they're not actually trying to help you. They're actually just trying to brag about what they know and what you don't know. It's actually very arrogant. And, and that's exactly what Paul says. There's a type of knowledge that says, hey, look what I know. Paul says, this knowledge, it puffs up. It's arrogance. Now, this word for puffs up, Paul has used it before in chapter 3 and 4. He used it again in the, favorite, uh, the famous passage of, of chapter 13 about love. And Paul is giving us a warning. that If you think your knowledge is simply a vehicle to promote self-glory and self-obsession to justify the position you want to take, you actually don't know anything at all. He even say in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. So if you try to use your knowledge in a way that, that only promotes what you want to get out of a situation, Paul says, you don't, that's not true knowledge. True knowledge is not an instrument to advance yourself, but it should always be a vehicle to help others, which is why he says love builds up. Earlier, Paul has described the, the church as God's building, and he says build with care. Do not destroy God's building. And so the, 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 the adhesive that, that brings us all together, you know, if you imagine if you're building a brick building, and you have all the bricks, and you try to build it without any mortar or, or adhesive, you're not going to build anything at all. It's just going to fall over. But, but the thing that binds us together, Paul says, is love. And so you can have all of the theological knowledge about building a church. You can know all of the systematic and biblical theologies, but if you don't have love, Paul says you're like a noisy gong. How many of us who love reading all of our theology books, who can talk about all the finer points of the doctrines of grace, who like to talk about eschatology, how easy is it is for us to actually want to be more about winning than in actually helping others? 
I wish I could say that this example in my life was from years ago and I've matured and I'm so much better now. But it wasn't just a few weeks ago where I was on a phone call with a trusted friend and we got into a minor theological discussion. And as I was reading this passage this week, I couldn't help but think back to that conversation. And if I'm being transparent with you, I think there was more pride in that conversation than there was love. In fact, maybe I should have listened to my wife who, who overheard the conversation and, and commented on, on the tone and said, I don't think that conversation was very helpful. Now, in the moment, I was probably too proud to admit that and said, oh, no, it was fine. I think I was good. And so I think there's a real danger here for, for those of us who, who are into all of the theology, who are into the theological debates. Paul is saying, there's a type of knowledge that is really just very dangerous. It doesn't build people up. Instead of being patient and, and concerned for our other brothers and sisters who maybe aren't on the same wavelength as us, we, we try to demand that they believe what we believe. And so we have to understand that we are called to build the church with love, to be patient. And so let us avoid the, the, the warning that Jesus gave to the Pharisees that with your lips you confess God, but your hearts are far from him. It is too easy to have a, a, a theological knowledge of God like, like reading a baseball card where you know facts and statistics, but you don't actually know the person. See, even the, even the demons have PhDs about God. And so, how about you? Do you ever sometimes feel superior to other Christians because of what you know and what they don't know? Think honestly for a moment. It seems like in the last two years, I've noticed no shortage of ways in which Christians can meaningfully disagree, but yet there's still this superiority of what I know and what you don't know. What should we do with educating our kids? Should we put them in public school or homeschool or private school? Sometimes our views can come across more as if we know better than you. If, if maybe we are in the middle of a pandemic and we thought we knew better on issues of masking and getting a vaccine and, and how to respond. It's not to say that we can't disagree, but there is a sense in which do we use our knowledge to defend our position or we do it to build up each other in love? So how do we, how do we avoid doing this? It's so easy, and, and for me, it's such a temptation to use my knowledge to to get what I want, to, to, to win the argument. Well, Paul kind of gives the answer right here in verse 3. In a surprising twist, he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, at, at first glance, that, that seems a little confusing. Is Paul saying, well, you better love God, and then if you, if, if you love God a lot, then, then he'll know you. Kind of what Paul is doing here is he's showing that true knowledge of Christ always leads to a love for God. But how does that love for God come? Well, it comes by knowing that you are known by God. 
Now, what, what do we mean by you are known by God? Does he know how many hairs are on your head? Yes, it's true. Does he know your thoughts? Yes. Does he know everything about you, past, present, and future? Yes. But how does God really know you? Well, he knows you in Christ. You see, this word actually for know is the word you have been called. It's, it's the language of election. When God was speaking to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 1, he tells Jeremiah, when you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. I called you. Why, why does this truth have such a significant impact on how we use our knowledge? Think for a moment. Even with all of our sins, even the things that we've done this week, the Lord knew what you're going to say. He, he knew what you're going to do. He knew what you're going to look at. And yet he called you. He set his love and his favor upon you. God did not call you because of something special he saw in you. He did it because of his great love for you. You see, the, the language of election and being known by God, what, what it ought to do is produce humility. The problem with the person who, who is all about the theological knowledge is they somehow think that the most important thing about them is how much they know about God. What Paul is saying, that's not true. What's most important about you is not what you know about God, it's that he knows you. Despite of all of your failings and weaknesses, God has called you. And that truth should radically humble us. That I am known by God. So I think Paul here is kind of attacking, like, what do you guys even know? What really matters, it's not what you know, it's what God knows about you. You know, A.W. Tozer has this, favorite, this favorite, famous quote. The most important thing about you, in the words of A.W. Tozer, is the thought that comes into your head about God. I, I appreciate the sentiment, but let's fix it. The most important thing about you is not what you think about God, but it's what God thinks about you. Your identity is not in how much you know and whether or not you can tell me all about the inner workings of Paro Bar's view of inspiration or whether you're a pre, all, or post-millennial or whether you're a Calvinist or a meaning, what's most important about you, your identity, is that you have been called and you are known in Christ. See, what this does, it brings a genuine love for God. That's why he says that. But if anyone loves God, this person is known by God. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because what's the fruit of loving God? He says it. Love builds up. We, we love others. And so we just have to recognize that, that there is a, a, a real legitimate danger in just accumulating knowledge. Our knowledge should lead to something. So, so with, with the danger in place, though, Paul, Paul pivots a little bit. And so in verses 4 through 6, we see the second point, the, the necessity of knowledge. Now, some of you are kind of in your heart saying, get him, Aaron. We don't need those people talking about theology and doctrine and, and all those boring books. Let's put them away. Let's just be real Christians and let's just be led by the Spirit. And Paul's like, well, wait, wait a second. 
Yes, there is a danger, but there's also a real necessity to having knowledge. So to kind of like harmonize my first two points, that you cannot have authentic, real Christianity without love. You just can't have it. It's not the real thing. But you also can't have real, authentic Christianity without knowledge. So therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that, that there is no God but one. Now what Paul does in this passage is he kind of takes that, that Shema passage that we read earlier in Deuteronomy 6, and he's kind of alluding to it, that, that we all know that there, all these idols, these so-called lords, you know, he's kind of putting them in brackets, they're, they're not real. There, there's only one God. Paul affirms monotheism. That, that you can't be a Christian without understanding that there isn't just a bunch of lesser gods and Jesus is the best God. No, there is one God. And, and so Paul here, I think, affirms that these, these knowers, even though they are coldless and loveless, that technically speaking, their theology is right. A few years ago, and by a few years ago, I should say third years ago, Mark Knoll wrote this book, called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And the scandal was that there wasn't a mind at all. And the whole book is a critique against the anti-intellectualism of modern-day evangelicalism. And that was 30 years ago. And I think that that critique still stands, that, that sometimes we, we can look at sound doctrine and theology and roll our eyes and Paul here, what I would say in verse 6, gives us one of the most compact, pithy, weighty, dense theological statements in the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Paul is not against knowledge. He's obviously against knowledge that it's divorced from love and relationships, but we need to have knowledge. And we'll see here in a second, but let's go over verse 6. Yet for thus there is one God. Again, monotheism, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. God is, is the meaning and the source of all of life. The reality is, is that all of us are creatures. We don't get to define right and wrong. We don't get to define what this life is about. We are dependent upon our God who has made us. But consider now, if you're a little Jewish boy or girl, and your entire life, you've been told the Shema, there is one God, there is one Lord. You know, with our kids, oftentimes we, we, we start with John 3.16. That's like the first verse most of us learn as kids, right? For them, it would have been Deuteronomy 6. So Paul takes this famous passage, and look what he adds to it, though. Verse 6, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. See, Paul adds Jesus into this great passage about one God. Both the Father and the Son are co-equal. They are both the divine agents of creation. They are the ones who say, let the stars be where they are. It is the Father and the Son who sustain creation right now as it is. This would have been a bombshell statement for any Jew reading this at the time. It would have been, for, for any pious Jew, heresy 
to say that Jesus Christ, who was a man, was equal with God. See, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this, this is really, in this verse right here, is a great summary of the whole Christian faith. That God has made you. That he has creator rights over you. But the problem with all of us, and the problem we see in the very first pages of Scripture, is that we want to do life on our own terms. We turn away from our good creator, and we define right and wrong in our own eyes, which the Bible calls sin. We sin in small ways and big ways, but the, the reality is, is that we are sinners in our very core. But right here, what Paul is saying is not only God our creator, he is our savior. That God, being the loving God that he is, he came into the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life of righteousness. He never once sinned. And he did all of that so that he would go to the cross and he would die as a sacrifice. And for those who would repent from their sins and turn to Christ in faith, they could be saved. They could have a new life. They could be born again. And this is what Paul is saying here in verse 6, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. For everyone here this morning who is a Christian, this is true. We have the new life in Christ because of what he has done. And, And so if you're not a Christian, this is our invitation to you that you would love and know your God for who he is as your creator and as your savior and that you would bow the knee to Jesus. And so for, us of us, for those of us who are Christians, we need to understand that, that the reason why Paul is making this very dense Christological statement is, is for a reason. Because as we read earlier in Deuteronomy 6, when you read on, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what's the very next implication of that? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and strength and mind. See, this is what good theology does. Knowing God more increases our love for God. How could it ever be said of any genuine Christian that I don't want to know more about the God who has made me and who has saved me? In fact, Christians... Let us get warm to what we will be doing for all of eternity of knowing, loving, and enjoying God forever and ever. There will never be a day in all of eternity in which we will ever be able to exhaust just one attribute of God. We will always for eternity be learning more about God. That's a hard thought to think about. So we need to commit to sound doctrine. We need to not be overly pious and mushy Christians given into a form of sentimentalism. We need to love God with our minds, which is why at this church we are committed to expository preaching. I'm not just giving you our thoughts, but working through a passage and showing and teaching what it means for our lives. And so, yes, Paul says, 
Knowledge, it has a danger. If you separate it from love and relationships, it's just going to puff up. But at the same time, knowledge is essential. Because the more we know about God, the more it should increase our love for God. And so lastly, Paul wants us to see the fruit of Christian knowledge. As, as we are studying, as we, as we preach through the Bible, as we, as we come to Bible studies, or, you know, for one of the lucky few, come early when we offer the core classes. You know, what is the fruit of Christian knowledge? And so look at verse 7 with me, would you? However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care. Be alert. That this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so Paul now switches groups. In verses 1 through 3, we have like the camp of the knowers, those who are all about their theological knowledge. But now he has what he refers to as, as the weak. And, and that's not a pejorative term. To, to be weak, really, what Paul is probably referring to is, is childlike. They're, they're untested. Maybe they're new Christians. Or as he refers to, maybe they have a, a certain past life. And, and, and doing certain things is, is really hard for them to overcome with what they've gone through in life. And so Paul says, listen, we all know that there's one God. Again, you have to be a Christian to affirm monotheism. So even these weak Christians know there's one God, but, but, but functionally speaking, when they go to these temples or when they see a Christian eating in these temples and, and, and with idols on the front page, it, it's, it's hard for them. Their, their conscience is pricked. Now, I, I firmly believe that, that a Christian conscience is one of those things that gets not a lot of attention. Uh, I think a few months ago, even our newsletter, I recommended a book on Christian conscience. Very helpful book. Can't remember the name. Something about conscience. But that's probably not a great summary, but I'm sorry. Um, you know, when we usually think about how God has revealed himself to us, you know, again, the, the proper theologians in the room say, you know, we have special revelation, we have the Bible, we have general revelation, we have creation and the earth. We could even point to the incarnation in which Jesus Christ has made God fully known. But yeah, I think another way in which God does reveal himself to us is through our consciences. That's why it's to go against your conscience is a sin. You see, you see Paul knows that there are some things that are, are not actually moral or immoral. Some things are not moral or immoral. Some things are. Now, if the Bible clearly says something is a sin, you can't say, well, my conscience allows me to do it. No, it's just sin. But for those few issues that is neither moral or immoral, our conscience kind of comes to the surface. Now, for us in this room, it's probably not going to be eat meat sacrificed to idols. But for some of us, how, how do we deal with alcohol? Maybe some of you in this room have a past with alcoholism, or maybe you grew up in a home and you saw the ravaging effects that an alcoholic can have, and you say, I will never get close to the stuff. And some of you say, 
I thank God so much for this wine and this cold beer, and I'm going to enjoy it. Movies that we watch. Some are more sensitive to, to certain themes, and maybe they'll say, you know, these movies that we watch, they have this undercurrent philosophy that trains us to, to think poorly about our fellow image bearers, and, and we shouldn't do it. And, and some think this is just a godly way to entertain ourselves. And, and I, I'm thinking more about themes of light and darkness and good trampling evil or music. I'll never forget, I went to some youth group in high school and like the whole youth group was like this documentary about why rock and roll was of the devil <laughs> okay maybe not quite the the thing i would talk to the youth about but they really firmly believed that there was this undergirding philosophy that was demonic behind rock and roll and and their conscience was pricked that you should not listen to hotel california as great as the guitar solo is it's 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 evil I mentioned earlier, education, clothing. These are all issues at times where, as Christians, our consciences are going to be different. And so I think 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14 are wonderful passages for us to, to read and to consider that, that the point is not so much demanding that even though my conscience is not pricked by this, for the sake of care and concern for my brother or sister, even though I feel I have the freedom to partake, I will forego. So with all that said, if, if you just so happened to be able to host Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to dinner, maybe don't offer them pulled pork. Maybe Google a good vegetarian option for them. Maybe be sensitive to the Christians you're around. Ask questions. I think one of the things we can maybe read into this passage a little bit, again, is that these knowers were maybe kind of condescending. They came across as know-it-alls. And so when they met a Christian who thought differently than them, they said, do you really believe that? Oh, you're so misinformed. You need to read this book, and then you'll be better. Yeah, I used to be like that too, but, but now I'm way more enlightened, and, and you should do. Do you see that type of condescending spirit? You see... The sin here is that we are far less patient with others than God has been with us. We don't like the pace that the Lord is moving in a brother or sister, so we need to speed them along. And Paul says, take care. So, so the fruit of your knowledge of having freedom and liberty in the Christian life should never be Something that doesn't show proper care and concern and patience for a believer. But he goes on in verses 10 to 13 to say that this fruit of knowledge should also be sacrificial. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Again, I think Paul here is, is highlighting it's, it's more about the venue, not the menu. You need to learn how to be someone who can look at your fellow brother and sister, care about them, and also be willing 
to sacrifice for them. So th- this is where this passage, I think, rubs up against us Americans. It's my right. I can do whatever I want. It's my body. It's my choice. I, if, that, if they have a problem with that, that's their problem. No, that, that is not true biblically. If they have a problem with it, it is, it is our problem together. And so some people think, like, Paul is saying, like, hey, guys, learn to be a little bit more sacrificial. Stop eating this meat, and then everything will be fine. But, but you have to understand just how influential the Greek and Roman world was with all of their idol temples. Now, three things would typically happen when someone would, would, would go to a temple and sacrifice a bull. Some of that meat would immediately, after it was sacrificed to this pagan god, would get carted away and be sold in the marketplace. Some of that meat would go to the little restaurant that would be connected to this idol temple, and the, the rest of it would be consumed right there with either the priest or as some feast or celebration to that god. Now, there are so many of these cultural deities and gods, there's all these temples that in many ways, society and all of culture happened at these little restaurants that were connected to these temples or actually inside these temples. And so if you're trying to make business associations or having relationships with unbelievers, it oftentimes meant that you had to go to these temples, go to these little restaurants, and so Paul is not just simply saying, hey, just, just try to tone down your diet a little bit. The sacrifice that he is calling for might literally have meant that they are going to have to suffer societal and financial problems. He is telling them to be completely away from doing all of that if it might make a sister or brother stumble. So we have to wonder here, in our church, how much are we willing to sacrifice for our fellow brother and sister? What's the appropriate amount of time that you will go out of your way to help a fellow brother or sister in Christ? How many of us even take time to pray for one another? Or maybe if you're not involved in serving in a ministry, is your time valuable enough to actually serve each other or maybe to even serve the kids of your fellow members? You can know all 66 books of the Bible. You can know a ton about the Lord. But if that knowledge doesn't have the fruit of of a genuine concern and sacrifice for my fellow brother and sister. Paul says, you've completely missed the mark. And so what theological reality could help us be the smelling salts out of this loveless knowledge? Look what he says. Verse 11, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. Paul goes back to the cross again and again, helping these Corinthian believers to see how the cross of Christ gives us the wisdom of how to actually live the Christian life. 
Paul, in essence, is saying, you're not willing to sacrifice your diet and a few societal ties for your brother and sister. Christ died for them. See, again, back to the passage earlier, Jesus is God. He is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. In Christ is all wisdom and wealth, deserving of all the man's praises. Yet Jesus didn't take advantage of all of that. Jesus, the one whom all angels worship day and night, willingly chose to say, I'm not going to take advantage of this role. Instead, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to condescend. I'm going to become a servant. And more than being a servant, I'm going to die for sinners like me and like you in order that we might be saved. And so the theological reality that helps us learn to live a life in which our knowledge truly has fruit is remembering what Christ has done for you. Simply put, the fruit, the true fruits of our knowledge and love of Christ is always seen in imitating Christ's sacrificial love for one another. If Christ gave himself up for you, you must also do the same. So maybe you're here this morning and, and you're a newer Christian. Maybe you're still kind of figuring out your theology on a few things and you're not really sure what to believe and, and there can be some Christians you're around and they, they seem very intimidating. They use a lot of big words. They can maybe at times even be condescending and maybe at times even I have been. Well, we need to repent. But my encouragement for you is that the, the fruit of your faith would be a, an intense love for God when you remember what Christ has done for you. When you remember that Christ took on flesh to come and die for your sins, may it remind you that, that what is not important is necessarily what you know about God, but it's that he knows you. You don't need to know all the theological jargon to rest in the fact that God sees you and loves you and knows you in Christ. And for those of us who maybe have been Christians for a long time and we have a lot of knowledge, may, may we be quick to repent of using any knowledge that would boast ourselves up, that wouldn't have the tangible fruit of love and sacrifice for others. I hope this passage reminds us of Christ who, who did not take advantage of all of his rights, but instead willingly chose to, to lay them down for the sake of others. So true knowledge of Christ, knowledge that actually has an aim of loving God and loving others, always comes when we remember what Christ has done for us and how we are known by him. And I pray that as this church knows this God more and more in Jesus Christ, that the demonstrable fruit in this room, the adhesive that would hold us together, would be a genuine love, concern, and sacrifice for one another. Let's pray.
our God and our Father. We thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. God, we thank you that in Christ we are known and called and chosen and loved. Lord, I pray that that message wouldn't be merely head knowledge that wouldn't actually change us. And so, Lord, we, we pray for the Spirit's help. We pray that we would have faith day in and day out to live in light of the truth of the gospel. That it's not so much about how much we know, but it's that we're known by you. And so, Lord, may that truth change us to love you more, to rejoice in you more. Lord, I pray that when we sing our songs in church, it would come from the heart that we would love you. Lord, I I pray that we would love you with our minds and and all of our strength, that we wouldn't be lazy lovers. Lord, help help us to, to truly remember how good the gospel is and what Christ has done for us. And Lord, I pray that as we love you, we would see the natural fruit of following Christ, that we would care for one another, that we would be mindful of our fellow brothers and sisters, that we would use our knowledge to build up and not tear down. So God, be gracious to us. Be merciful to us. Give us this faith, we pray all now in Jesus' name. Amen.